from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and director known for crafting films that delve into the chilling realms of demonic possession and the harrowing depths of insanity. His storytelling prowess and cinematic expertise produce films that are not just terrifying, but also remarkably captivating. He's joining me today to talk about his new film, The Puppet Man, as well as his previous work, Z. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Brandon Christensen. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this first day of November 2023. My fiance and I came across your movie, The Puppet Man, while scrolling through Shutter one night. And after watching the trailer, knew that we needed to look no further. We gave the film our undivided attention so we could absorb every complex, subtle nuance of the psychology and supernatural terror that you brought to the screen. So we thoroughly enjoyed the film and loved the ending, which actually made us kind of like the villain, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So thank you for taking the time to come on the show and discuss the film with me. Yeah, no worries. I always enjoy talking about stuff in a long form such as this. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Me as well. So the film is about a young woman named Michael, who's the daughter of a notorious killer whom the public refers to as the puppet man. When she was just a child, her father was apprehended by the police for killing Michael's mother. Upon searching the house, the police found Michael locked away in a cage like an animal. And what's peculiar about the murder is that her father claimed he didn't commit the crime and that someone else was controlling his body. So fast forward a decade or so, and the story begins with Michael in college. So when you were writing the script, what elements of the college atmosphere did you feel could be leveraged for horror, prompting you to set the story in that environment? I mean, I think that just college in general is just such a formative time for anyone. You know, it's kind of the the doorway into adulthood. It's the first time, traditionally, anyways, that you kind of go from living at home and it's the first time that you're on your own and you have to feed yourself, you have to do all these things and you're really just like 
free for the first time in your life. You know, you're no longer under the thumb of the parents if that's how you came up. So for me, it just feels like such a great opportunity, not even just for horror, but just for storytelling, because you're putting a character in a very unfamiliar place. They don't have their comforts. And you have a character like Michael, who really never had that. You know, she came up in different foster care. After the situation with her first stepfather, she kind of went through, I imagine, you know, in the past, she went through different houses and was just kind of shuttled from place to place. So this is kind of the first time that she's independent. She's alone. And she's able to kind of find her way. And unfortunately, just with the way things happen, that way goes very, very south. But um, yeah, I just think the idea of just leaving childhood and having your first taste of adulthood and your first taste of responsibility is such a cool place to play for horror or something like that, because you just don't have help nearby. You know, like you can't just go upstairs and your parents are there. All the things that you're used to, they're gone, you know, for a normal person. When you have Michael, who just never had anybody, it was just such an isolating place. Like she wasn't with anybody anymore for the first time. So she has these friends, but even they don't all really like her. She's kind of held together with Charlie. And of course, Charlie's the first one to go. And, you know, just sort of how does this group maintain when the Jerry of the group is gone, you know? So I think just in general, college is such an interesting time just because it's almost like military. You're a young kid still. You don't have any responsibilities or any life experience, but you're sort of sent out into the world. And it's just like, all right, you know, I'll see you at Christmas. You know, it's just like, it's this really weird thing that we do. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just like a unique opportunity for just being alone for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Michael's not only attending college, she's also living on campus in a dorm mm -hmm. room. And I've only been in one dorm room in my life or dormitory, I should say. Mm -hmm. Considering the kind of institutional feel of dorms, how did you manipulate lighting, sound and other atmospheric elements to amplify the horror aspects of the story? Yeah, I mean, you're just kind of like in a hallway with a ton of people that are, you know, in a similar experience as you. And, you know, I think it's so interesting when you go to college and you have that dorm life, like you're paired up with someone that you don't know. You show up on the day and it's just like, oh, hi, you're in my space and I'm in your space for the foreseeable future. And it's kind of like when you're a child and you go to school or you go to a playground and it's just like friendship by proximity. So, you know, it's like, hey, we're both the same age and we're on the slide together. Let's be best friends. You know, it's a similar kind of thing, but you're older now and you have your own tastes and you have your own things. So you have these two characters who couldn't really be any different. You have the extrovert with Charlie and you have the introvert with Michael. And it's just such a weird situation where Michael could very well just sort of stay alone, but she has kind of become attracted to this Charlie character who can guide her into a more normal college life. And so she's had a few months of that and been brought into this friend group for the first time in her life and all this stuff. So it was kind of interesting. I mean, the lighting and things like that, we just wanted to keep it as real as possible at all times. Like everything's lit through the windows or little practical lights. But I mean, the scary parts in the film for the room is like the, the sleepwalking bits and the birds in the window and stuff like that. So it's really no different than any location. I mean, once it gets nighttime and you have those dark moments and you're alone in this area and it's kind of like you're alone, but you're surrounded by similar people. You know, if you went down that hallway and started knocking on every door, you would find another pairing of similar people that are, are just like getting by. You know, they're the first time they're alone. They're they're uncomfortable and they're in an unfamiliar place. And it's just, it is very institutional. Like it's like very prison-like, right? So just finding a way to utilize that being 
even though you're surrounded by people, you're still alone because you don't, you know, they're all strangers in this place. I went to a film school and so I had a different experience, but you know, I'd visited and hung out at college dorms and stuff like that. And it's so interesting just because it's like a summer camp, like each floor has their own social space where people just hang out and they just hang out because they're in the same space. Like they would probably never be friends in normal life. So it's just such an interesting place and time. And I know I kind of touched on that before, but yeah, I mean, college is just such a weird time in your life. So, I mean, just having a character alone in the dark in an unfamiliar place that they don't want to be, you know, like when things start going down, the one person that's giving you comfort is gone now. It's awful. Like you're in a tiny room and you look to your left and that person's entire life is there for you on display. And so it's just like, I can imagine the psychology of just being a character who just lost a friend and everything that you know of them and their entire life is just right there looking at you. You know, it's not only scary, it's just incredibly lonely. And that was kind of the thing we were pushing with this is just trying to keep Michael as alone as possible because that's how she's used to. She was, you know, she was raised kind of put into this like little prison thing in their house. Like she was always alone. She just never had a family that was ever normal. So the first time she gets some semblance of that, you rip it away and you put her back alone, which is, uh, you know, it's a pretty terrifying prospect, I think. Yeah. And you uh, alluded to it earlier, the sleepwalking. Michael experiences these strange sleepwalking episodes where she actually does kind of strange things, which I'll leave out to not get spoilery, but she eventually discovers that Charlie is videotaping them. And I was curious, how would you interpret Charlie's motivations for filming Michael during these episodes? Was she genuinely trying to support and understand Michael, or was she driven by her own morbid curiosity and this sort of passion it seems like she has for true crime podcasts? I don't think Charlie's someone that would hide her feelings. Like she tells her that, you know, my kooky roommate is doing these weird things. Like, of course I'm going to film it. Like she's very unabashedly herself, you know? So at all times she's not lying to anyone. She just tells people who she is because she doesn't care. She's like, I am who I am. If you like it, great. If you don't, great. I don't care. So I think she's just a unique character where she can do whatever she wants. And she has this, you know, she loves these true crime podcasts. She's got like, you know, posters of the occult and like the Illuminati and all this stuff. She just, I think she just is a person that likes to look deeper into things. So when she starts waking up in the middle of the night and her roommate, who is a total stranger, is doing these weird things, it's like, okay, like I want to film this because I don't know if this footage is going to matter ever, but I'm going to document it because I've got this journalistic mind and I'm just going to create a library of all these times she does it so that I can, if something were to happen, you know, if all of a sudden Michael kills everybody in the college, she can go like, I have footage that might help solve this case, whatever it is, you know? So I think she's just got this analytical mind that makes her do that. And so I don't think there's anything malicious about it. Unfortunately, you know, it is a very private thing to be doing and her past is very private. So for Michael, at least, I think she's a place of comfort and she's the one person that she feels she can talk to until, you know, a specific moment happens. But yeah, I think it's funny because to me, Michael is when she's sleepwalking, that's her like truest self coming out. So she's trying to help her awake self because there's this real kind of dynamic of, you know, the puppet man versus Michael going through the whole movie and who's doing what and what's doing who and everything. So yeah, I think Charlie is just there to sort of help 
take that information, which is very kind of cryptic and try and find answers through it, you know? So she's just like the perfect roommate to have for Michael because she's going to be looking deep into that, even if it is just to help her own curiosity. Yeah. At one point, Michael and her friends visit a medium named Ruby who claims she can help them uncover what happened to Charlie, who, um, I, I guess it's not a spoiler considering yeah, the, tra- the, the trailer. trailer. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you see what happens to Charlie. Right. She uh, comes to an untimely demise. Mm-hmm. So I was curious to know, instead of embodying the ominous and intimidating presence often associated with that character archetype, Ruby is surprisingly matronly and mild manner. What inspired this persona for Ruby's character? I think that, you know, when I was talking to Karen Richmond, who plays the character, it was like everything you're doing up until the moment where the puppet man kind of embodies her for a moment. She's just putting on a performance to try and keep everything as cool as possible. You know, like you don't want to come at someone interrogating them because, you know, I think Ruby is someone that has a lot of experience, as we find out through the movie, with the history of this thing. Like she's been trying to find people that have had this thing because she's been studying it. She knows a lot about it. Um, It's kind of like her life's work is to try and find and help someone with this thing. So when she has, you know, this girl coming up and saying like, oh, I've got this thing, I'm sure there's some hesitancy there and she's just going along with it because she's interested. But until she experiences Michael for the first time, she doesn't really know. And so she's totally a different person when they get there to the end of the movie because she knows that, this is actually real. And this is something that she's been working on. And so she's in mission mode. She's like, I know what to do. I'm going to help this. and I'm going to help that. I'm going to do this. So I think at the beginning, she's putting on this performance to be this gentle person. So as not to stir anything inside of Michael, like if she makes Michael scared, who knows what will happen? Because she's kind of like, you know, she's like a loaded gun coming into her house. So she's got to be very kind of cagey, and protective of herself and everybody there because she needs to like suss out is this real or not you know i've got this girl who's very emphatically showing me videos of her and being like you know there's this history going on and there is some weird stuff but until she sees it for herself she's gonna kind of treat it with kid gloves because she doesn't want to ruin what could potentially be there so yeah i think it's definitely a choice to make her just as soft and gentle as possible so that in the event that, you know, this Charlie girl was right, something's up with this girl, you're not letting on too much right away. You know, it's just like, she's doing serious work here and dealing with the occult and stuff like that. So she knows how serious it can be because she's read about it. She's studied her whole life uh, about what this, you know, the puppet man can do. Yeah. And there's several examples, one of which is when they go see Ruby for the first time that Michael kind of flies off the handle a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it seems like it could be ascribed to Michael herself being freaked right. out about what's going on. So when she kind of flies off the handle about things that seem rational, yeah, is that still her? I don't think so. I think that basically once that podcast is listened to, I think that she's slowly becoming not herself. You know, like okay. the very beginning of the film, being reminded of this stuff it's all bringing out this thing that's inside of her and it's slowly replacing her as a person entirely. Like by the end, 
it's not Michael anymore. It's this other thing. So yeah, you see her kind of exploding because I think that whatever's inside of her is really just demanding, like, how much do we know here? Like, what do we know about me now? And so, you know, a lot of that heated explosion is coming not so much from Michael as much as it is from this thing. So it's just like a matter of being very cautious what you say, when you say it, and just making sure that these characters aren't doing too much because if they do, there's some dire consequences that we see later at play here. So it's very kind of just like, you just want to be careful with what you say around here. And so she tries different ways of communicating, but it doesn't always go well for (laughs) the people that she's talking to. Yeah. Well, speaking of communicating, Ruby tries to communicate with Michael's mother, Patricia, using a psychic technique called automatic writing. And this method is a distinct way to communicate with the other side by allowing a spirit to take over the medium's body and use them to write a message on paper or whatever kind of medium they're using. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to know what drew you to that over other forms of mediumship like clairvoyance or using a spirit board? Um, I mean, part of it is just like aesthetically, like, you know, you bring a Ouija board into the film and it becomes about the Ouija board. You know, you have like Ouija, Origin of Evil and those films. They're about that. And this is more about, you know, the characters kind of playing with each other and not having a device that matters because the device doesn't matter. All that matters is the taking over prospect. So it's like at the time when that happens, we might assume as a viewer that, she's being inhabited by this spirit, like her mother's there and she's doing this stuff. But I think as you know, the movie goes on, we realize that it's really just, I mean, the movie's out. I don't care about spoilers <laughs> no, <laughs> if you <okay>. don't. So <laughs> yeah, because you know, the more cagey you get, it kind of gets lost, like what you're trying to convey if you're just trying to uh-huh. hide behind spoilers. So because Dolos is inside of Michael, it's Michael forcing this woman to do the thing. And like, you know, it's staying true with what they're trying to do. She's trying to do this automated reading. But when Michael sees it and it's happening, Dolos is just sort of reaching out and being like, you know what, I'm going to move the process forward. So to us, it just aesthetically, it just made more sense for the film to not make it about a device because a device, you know, it's like Chekhov's gun. You use this device, you'll probably have to use it again. And we just wanted to show the fact that Michael on the inside is trying to relay information out you know, through writing on the mirror, through doing these things and doing the three lines over and over as like her child self is trying to come out and remind her of stuff. So it just felt like the right move for us to not have a thing as much as just the message being conveyed directly. Yeah, that makes sense. I I guess when I think about it, a Ouija board has a certain level of charisma. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. And, it, and, you know, it could be faked and like, you know, someone's forcing the little reader thing. So it's just about taking away anything beyond just the spirit and the person, you know, just trying to simplify it as much as possible. So it doesn't become about the other thing. Because, you know, if, if say they had a Ouija board, all of a sudden, like the conversation's like, well, did you do that? It's like, no, I didn't. You know, are you sure? And there's like trust issues. And it just complicates things where you just want to get to the message. And the message is she's being controlled. Gotcha. Well, in the story, the two male characters, Glenn and Danny, appeared to embody contrasting qualities. Glenn represents the weightlifting alpha male, while Danny comes across as the sensitive and caring beta male. 
Similarly, among the females, Charlie is portrayed as the alpha and Joe as the beta, at least in the beginning. Sure. So I was curious to know, was Charlie's death at the hands of the spirit due to her aggressive presence and determination to uncover what was happening with Michael, whereas the spirit really wasn't worried about Joe or any of the rest of them, I suppose, because of uh, Joe's passive nature? And can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, to me, it ultimately just comes down to Michael's emotions at the time, like the rooftop party, things are going well until Glenn opens his big mouth and kind of like breaks Michael's heart by being like, hey, this friend that you've had for the last few months, your first friend ever, she kind of backstabbed you. Like she told this guy that she was seeing something very personal about you that she just told you an hour or two before that it was your little secret, you know? Mm. So all of a sudden this little secret isn't so secret anymore. And inside of Michael isn't just like the emotions of a friend betraying her, but all of a sudden it's like, okay, we've got this friend that not only betrayed me, but she's looking into me and my past and all this stuff. And so the thing is reacting off of that. So I feel like every time that, something bad happens, it's typically tied to Michael's emotions. Like when Joe and Glenn, they have their incidents, Michael is talking at the same time with Danny at the diner. And then she tells Joe and she tells Glenn and she tells her this secret and it's about me. And like, they're finding out who I am. And like, you know, Joe's on a mission to find out more about this book. And Glenn, he knows too much. So to me, it's just Charlie is just a victim of just that explosion of emotion from Michael. She gets taken over at that point because it's just like this thing inside of Michael is just protecting Michael from herself kind of thing. It's just, I got to get rid of her. And then as we keep going and Michael's thinking about things more and she's realizing like these people know too much. And so, you know, basically everybody's got to start going and Danny's the same thing. Like when he goes, it's because she finds out he knows too much. So it's tied very closely not so much to these individual character traits. I mean, their deaths certainly are tied to that, but the reason for their death is more tied to Michael's emotions than the person themselves. So they're just getting too close to the sun and they got to go. <laughs> so her, what I would say are rational emotions are kind of like triggers for the spirit totally. to kind of latch onto. Totally. Because yeah. I mean, when you're coming up with mythology and stuff like that, you have to have a rule set to follow. And it's tough. I mean, the edit of the film is different than the script where in the script, it was like Glenn dies and then Joe dies. But now, like when we're you get into editing and you're redoing some things and you realize the experience is better if they both go simultaneously. And so you have this cutting back and forth. And it's funny because like you're so deep in the weeds at that point on the filmmaking side of things and just making it work from an experience perspective that the story perspective, you forget like, oh, this kind of creates implications does this mean that the thing can split and go to two things at once? Like, what does that mean? And so it does kind of complicate things. You're kind of weighing like the cinematic experience versus the logic experience for a moment. And it ultimately, again, it just ties down to just Michael is trapped. She knows these people know too much. It's not even really Michael anymore. So it's just like her father says when she visits him at the prison, like he's using you and when everyone that you love is dead and gone, it'll move on. And so, you know, we don't know it at the time, but that's basically just foretelling what's about to happen to everybody is, you know, everybody's going to be gone. She's just leaving a wake of bodies and it's going to move on. So that's basically like the thesis of the film coming from the dad. And so it's basically just Dolo protecting itself at all times at that point. Gotcha. Well, 
We've mentioned the spirit as well as its name a few times. Dolos, who, when I looked him up, he is in Greek mythology described as the apprentice to Prometheus. So how did you stumble upon this obscure character for the film? Because I think a lot of people are familiar with Prometheus, but Mm -hmm. this is kind of an associate of Prometheus that's known for being a trickster, which is very well showcased in the film. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Dolos was something I hadn't heard of before either. When we first started putting this together, it was more, you know, we were talking about like the dancing plague and just all of these things through time, the Pied Piper, basically mind control, like being under this hysteria of these things. And like throughout time, there's all these examples, like the Jones massacre here like that wasn't that long ago but all these people were under this mass hypnosis by this thing and i don't know if is that supernatural maybe not in all cases but potentially there was and so when you get to the point where you're like trying to put an actual thing on it we found this thing called dolos and it's the god of trickery and we're like oh that plays with everything like if you have this single answer it's like oh we've got the dancing plague it's like oh that was dolos we have the pied piper phenomenon it's like oh that was dolos so if you can put your own little realistic whatever it is, an actual spirit or demon and attribute it to something in history like that. I think it's kind of cool because it kind of recontextualizes things. And so now we're in this current time period and we're getting another dancing plague. And it's this thing, Dolos, once again, it's back and it's taking over. So the whole movie to me is just basically realizing that Dolos is here and it's winning. So like when you get to the end and you realize like, oh shit, like we were tricked that, you know, the whole thing is just, that's its motto is it's the God of trickery and it's pulling a trick on the whole thing. I mean, the original title for the film was called let it lie. Like that was the script name. That was the shooting title. And there's moments in the film where Michael wakes up or she's in her sleep trance and she's saying, let it lie, let it lie. And in repeating it, it was a lot more pronounced before the title changed because That was the title that made sense to us. And it's about it being Dolos and it's lying to everybody. And it it just has these different meanings and stuff like that. And unfortunately, we had to change the title a little bit further down the road. But um, it's always interesting to just sort of look through and attribute historical things to something and have it tie into your film a little bit. And so that was really kind of like the goal there was just to explain past phenomena in a way that is relevant in the film itself, you know? Yeah. Well, all around great movie. The aspect of the trickery is showcased throughout, but even better in the ending, which I will not spoil at all. Listeners at home, you have to, you have to watch the film to find that out. It's it's really good. Hmm. But my fiance and I also watched your film Z, which is about a young boy named Joshua who has an imaginary friend named Z. The deeper Joshua's relationship with Z becomes, the more trouble he gets into, exhibiting acts of violence and disturbing behavior until he's finally expelled from school. And unbeknownst to his mother, Beth, Joshua's father, Kevin, had been signing multiple discipline forms that Joshua was repeatedly sent home with, but he hadn't mentioned it to Beth. And when Beth asked him why he hadn't told her about the discipline forms, his rationale was simply, boys get into trouble. So was Joshua's father influenced by outside sources to allow Joshua to continue his harmful behavior? Or was there a different dynamic at play? 
No, I think, I mean, honestly, it's just a matter of like the relationship of parent and child and the relationship of parents, you know, together. It's such an interesting dynamic. I have three kids and it's a daily battle to be a parent to kids while still maintaining a relationship with your spouse. You know, like yeah. you have to be two different people at once. So with my spouse, it's more grown up stuff. And when you're with your kid, you're relating to them on a different level. And so I think the father here, and this is really just like the problem with Beth is that the dad gets to be the fun parent without having to do the parent stuff during the day. Whereas Beth is at home. She's the stay-at-home mom. She doesn't have the career that can distract her. So she has friends a little bit. She's got a sister. She's got a broken home life that she wants to forget. But she gets to see her husband and her son. They have a little handshake, like they do knuckles. They have all these little things that she doesn't have with her kid. And I'm sure that it's like a friction point for them because I'm doing all the work, but you're getting all the fun. And that's not fair. And so I think there is this situation where she's a little bit angry with him that he's not just being the father. Like to her, this is really serious. Like he's hitting a kid, mm -hmm. he's swearing in class. I should be knowing about this. This is horrible. But to the dad, it's just like, that's just what they do. You know, like he's not being a bad dad or a bad parent. He's just trying to relate with the kid more. And that's what the mom hasn't done like ever. She's totally lost that side of her. So when that all kind of unfolds, it's just sort of showing like this dad is able to be on the kid's side and like to be his bro, you know, like they can be friends. And it's not just a parent kid relationship that he can be on his level and like, you know, oh, don't worry. I'll, I know your mom's going to overreact to this. So I'm just going to handle it. And it's going to be fine. You know, just don't do it again, whatever. And it keeps happening and it keeps happening. And then unfortunately unfolds the way it does. But yeah, up to that point, I think the dad's just trying to be a good dad and friend and just, you know, you're balancing things differently when you've got a career and you've got all these things. So it's just about that to me. Just how do you handle a kid when you've got two very different lifestyles? Yeah. Well, they eventually take him to a psychiatrist. And even though the psychiatrist was completely benevolent, he had sort of a sinister appearance and demeanor like i hope i'm <laughs> it doesn't come across like i'm insulting the guy but like no. just in, inherently he kind of has this sinister presence and i was wondering kind of like what was it the persona of ruby in the puppet man being interested in your choice of the persona to project in this movie was it intentional for the psychiatrist who was benevolent to also have kind of a sinister appearance? No, I mean, look, I mean, end of the day, we're making indie films. Like, you don't always cast who it's written for, you know? Like, okay. it was an opportunity where it's like, oh, we can get Stephen McCaddy for this role. And it's like, oh, like, he's an industry legend kind of guy, been in a million things. So there's conversations that go beyond just what's for the movie at all times. You know, like, there's always conversations. You're just trying to cast up certain roles. You're trying to do things like that. So you, when you have the opportunity to have a guy like Stephen McCaddy come on, he adds a lot of cinematic credibility to the film because he just looks that way and he sounds that way. And so it just brings on a different vibe than maybe you were intending. But it's interesting, you know, for sure. I mean, he's older and he's just got this face where he's this genre face. And so it's hard to say no for that, especially when, you know, your options are always limited because you only have so much money, you know? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, it is kind of funny because you bring them onto a scene that is kind of just like two parents trying to figure out their way. And you've got this super cinematic face on the other side staring at them like he knows something more. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I'll just say like, there's only so much control you have in situations such as these. And so you're allowing some narrative leeway because of the situation <laughs> without getting too into the weeds. And to be clear, my assumption was is that it was some clever juxtaposition. So I wasn't like sure, saying that it didn't that. work or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and Stephen McCaddy, you are a handsome man. Don't take yeah. any offense to that. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I'm sure he would. But uh, yeah, that's all I'll say about that experience. That's uh, that's yeah, that was a, an interesting time. Gotcha. <laughs> Well, what are some of the unique challenges when working with children that are not only in the movie, but in a primary role? Um, I've been really fortunate so far. Like I worked with uh, this young girl, Natalie, in The Puppet Man. She played the young Michael. Obviously, Jet Klein, who's gone off to have a great career after Z and Z. So it's a different thing. I mean, ultimately, when you're directing, you're basically like a babysitter. It's a lot of just managing things and everybody has their different needs. You know, your different kids have different needs. You're just taking care of them because ultimately they have the talent that you need to bring out as much as you can. And so you're just kind of like trying to make the experience fun for them so that when they're in that position, they feel vulnerable enough to allow themselves to get there and stuff. You're just kind of playing off that. And with children, it's a little bit different because they don't have the experience that you get from like an actor. Like, oh, they've got all these years of life experience and work experience that they can draw from. Kids are a little bit different where it's very kind of like conceptual. It's like, oh, you need to be upset here. They don't really have that inner ability to be like, I'm going to remember that time my grandmother passed away and I was really upset. And they can channel these things. So to me, anyways, it works really well to be more technical with it and even like acting alongside them. I mean, like the biggest no-no when you're directing actors is to like line read for them. You know, mm -hmm. you know, if an actor says, you know, it's like, I'm going to the store today. And when you wrote it, you read it as a character to be like, I'm going to the store today. You know, and then all of a sudden this actor comes on and they're like, I'm going to the store today. And you're like, that's not how it was in my head. You can't just be like, no, I want you to say it like this because every actor will get pissed. You know, it's, it's just a, <laughs> it's like a big director faux pas. You cannot do it. Line reading is like the cardinal sin of directing. But with kids, they don't know that for one. And they don't know what they need to do because they don't have that experience. So there is a little bit of technical directing like on the puppet man for example when we're doing these lines with the little girl and like she's in a closet kind of thing there was more stuff that was on the cutting room floor but it's basically like me sitting over the camera like right above where i need her eyeline to be and i'm just talking to her one-on-one -on -one, like you know like very softly just talking to her like a parent would do and you're just sort of relaying how you're feeling and you're like building off of each other so it's like okay say it like this now it's just do a little, little more like that and you just sort of like you mold it together you're kind of just acting alongside them and you're hoping that they can kind of copycat you because i think if you leave most kids they just don't have the experience to just be able to do it on their own i will say though with jet on z like he had a ton of experience coming into the film. So he came in and he knew set etiquette. Like he knew where he needed to be. He knew the departments. He knew all the stuff like that. So it was a little bit different because when he came on set, he wasn't the kid. You know, he was just an actor. And that was really cool because I've had both. Like I've worked with kids in commercials. I've done all this stuff. And you do have more of a technical kind of way of directing them. But with Jet, there was situations where you're like, you're going through a lot. So you're upset about X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And he could actually pull from it just because he had that experience already. 
but that's really rare for like an eight or nine year old. Mm. That's really crazy. I mean, I just watched E.T. with my family recently and Elliot's so good. But then you watch his audition tape when he's like improving a scene and Spielberg's watching. I don't know if you ever watched it, but uh-huh. Henry, what's his name? Henry something. He's in all the Flanagan stuff. Sorry, I can't remember his name. Anyways, yeah, YouTube it after this. It's so good. He does this improv scene about an FBI agent trying to take the alien from him and they're like arguing about it and he just starts sobbing. And at the end of the thing, you hear Spielberg in the background. He's just like, okay, kid, you got the job. And it's just like (laughs) the most insane audition you'll ever see. And he was like eight. It's just like, that's such a rare skill. So, you know, I'm sure they were watching that. Like, who is this kid? What is happening? And we had a similar thing where it was just like, this kid just had the experience already. He didn't need that kind of coaching because he already did it. Like he's gone on to be in Marvel stuff. He's working constantly now. It's pretty amazing to watch. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll definitely check, have to check that out. Yeah. It's really cool. It's like three minute clip. It's awesome. Well, what was the most technically challenging scene to film in the movie? Um, I mean, I would have to go with the fire sequence at the end of Act Two mm-hmm. because it was like the first two weeks of that shoot, we were in overnight, so we'd be like six p.m. to six a.m. And I mean, that alone is hard. You know, your whole schedule is backwards. You're never seeing the daylight. It's just really difficult. And so starting that way and going for two straight weeks because, you know, you're shooting out the location of the main house. So you're kind of just there. It was just very challenging. But then we had the fire day on the very last day of that thing. So it was after two weeks of nights. And you get to this point where it's just a very big technical thing. You've got a lot of lights that come in. You've got all this stuff and you have a plan and you've got to do it. And, you know, you've got five hours maybe. And so what happened there is like we had a really good plan. We had all the shots that we wanted to get and we knew a lighting pattern that we wanted to do and we had all this stuff. And then, you know, it was basically like we shot in the morning of that day in the morning, starting at like 6 p.m. We were shooting all the dinner scenes at the table and then we would break for lunch and then we would spend the rest of the day, like five hours or so, just on this sequence moving through the house with all this fire and death, whatever. But what happened was we came out of lunch we're lighting everything, we're getting everything set up. And then all of a sudden, all the lights die. And you're just like, what happened? Everyone's looking, pointing fingers, and then they go over and they look and the generator that we have is out of gas. And it's after midnight, and we're like an hour away from the city. So it's like, okay, send a PA, someone's got to go get gas. So we're all just standing there, we can't shoot anything because we have no light. And you can't shoot a fire scene without light because you need that interactive lighting. So we're just waiting there. And we have someone rushing out to the city and trying to get gas, but you're going to lose at least two hours, you know? So we're all just waiting and we're just thinking like the sun's going to be up when we're wrapping. Now it's one o'clock, one thirty a.m. And the amount of shots that we have, you start going, okay, we got to lose this one and we got to lose this one and we got to lose this one. And you get to the point where you can only shoot the bare minimum of what you need for the scene. And so they return with the gas and then you're just in go mode. There's no time to think. You just have to shoot, 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 shoot. And it's just like you're going through a path of shots that you have determined will be the most expedient way to do it. And you're doing this huge set piece that like ends the second act and kicks you into the third act. So it's a huge sequence. You know, we don't know how the fire is going to look. We don't know how any of that's going to work. And you kind of get to that point where you're just like, you're like a robot. The whole crew has to be fast. They have to be nimble. So they're just going, shot, move on, shot, move on, shot. And you're just getting through it all. And then you get the whole scene and you just like hope to God it cuts together because you've cut so much. (laughs) So that was technically challenging just because of the external factors. But the train one too, you know, we had like an actual train we controlled 
And so, you know, we have the girl running beside the train. We've got the kid on the tracks. There was a lot of pieces going on there. And, you know, you only have the train for X amount of hours because it's so expensive. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just do the most planning for something like that. So the train one was interesting because we didn't know how many passes we would get. We didn't know how long it would take to go from A to B and then reverse and then do it again. So we had like four or five cameras going just because we didn't know what we would have time-wise because I think we had two hours with the train. And so you're just making sure that you get everything you need, pretty much every pass, because if they do a pass and they're like, hey, we're done, we got to back up. And you're just like, we have half a scene left. So that was challenging too, just because it's not just actors, it's thousands and thousands of tons of metal flying on a, you know, predetermined (laughs) path. It was really cool. Like it was fun, but you know, everybody had to be ready for that day. And so that was really cool. Oh man. I don't know if I can handle that level of stress. <laughs> you, yeah, I mean, you, it just is what it is. Like, <laughs> you have to be. It's just you know everything's going to fall apart because it always does. So you just have to sort of see through the chaos and just like see that clear path of how it might not be what you wanted, but it's a path to the end where you're going to mm-hmm. get it. And so that happens a lot, especially in indie films. Yeah, you must read a lot of Stoic philosophy. <laughs> uh, yeah, some I don't know. <laughs> Well, one of the things that struck me about the trailer for Z is when his mother walks into his room and it's like a jump scare from a drawing. You see that rendering of Z on the wall. So where did the concept for the, I guess, that rendering or imagination of the character come from? Yeah, so this is funny. So in the script, it's like a very scribbly drawing of this thing and you don't really know what that is. Like, ideally in a film you have like concept artists and they can come up with these things and they send you 20 drawings and you're like, I like that one, maybe make the eyes bigger and then whatever. But when you're in the indie space, you don't have that. So everyone's like, Brandon, what does this thing look like? And it's like, Oh God, I don't know. Like, you know, in the page, it just reads like scribbles and shadows and, and things like that. There's no definitive spin on it. So it was like day two of production and Brittany Allen, who did the score of the film she's an artist too. And she was just like sketching stuff and she sent us a picture and it was the picture that we used, but Mm. you know, they showed it to me and I was just like, Oh, that's really cool. But my initial instinct was just like an eight year old is not going to be able to draw that. The size isn't the issue. It's just the fidelity of the drawing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we get to post-production because all that stuff was done in post. It was just, you know, added in VFX. So it could just kind of change and iterate, but that became like the temp artwork that we just used. And the more that we looked at it, the more it just felt right. And then you can kind of hand wave the logic behind it. It's like, well, either Z drew it or the kid was like being helped by Z. So it's not necessarily Josh's interpretation. I was getting so caught up in the weeds of like, well, a kid couldn't draw that. He's eight years old. Like you would have to, the rendering would be worse. And I was not thinking about the genre implications of what this looks like, you know, like that stuff doesn't matter. There's so many little things you can get hung up on in a film. Like in my first film, Stillborn, like we're like shooting a shot of people walking on a street outside. And I'm like, oh, that truck needs to be over there because of this. And it's like, no one cares. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's so many things you can get so caught up on and the minutia of things that don't matter. What matters is like the characters and where they are, because that's who's being tracked. You know, someone might look in the background and see this truck or something like that. And great, that's good for them. But for the 99.9% of people that are just following the story, focus there first, and the other things will kind of just fall into place. And so that was one of those things where I was just so focused on logic when logic didn't matter at that particular point, if that makes Mm. sense. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see your thought process as, yeah, this kid's not going to be able to draw something with that sort of fidelity. But the way I kind of interpreted it as was not only a jump scare, because there it is, holy mm -hmm. shit, but his mind, because he's, you know, in a sense, an imaginary friend, totally. but not really. His mind is so connected yeah. with Z totally. that he vividly can see this For and sure. has no problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I viewed it. Anyway. Yeah. I th and I so. think that's what most people would assume is just like, no one's being like, oh, an eight-year-old can't draw that for sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I want to know his background. Did he go to art school? What's happening? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's where you, you can get lost in that. Like, well, do we need to like establish that he went to an art school? You know, right? <laughs> you know, it's just like, what are the things that people are going to be like, ah, uh, ah, we got you. Yeah. That's a plot hole. It's like, eh, uh -huh. it, it can be tough. <laughs> Well, in contrast to the serious nature of the film, were there any bloopers or funny incidents that occurred? Um, I mean, it's funny because like depending on the film, you're always so tight for time mm -hmm. that you don't have time to have those like endless takes where someone just like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. We just need to calm down because it's not a comedy. There's not a lot of jokes. It is very serious and technical and stuff like that. So you do get those moments for sure, especially when you're doing overnights, you know, like the first two weeks when we were on Z, just like you get to 1am, 2am and people just start getting loopy on the crew, you know, and then that <laughs> bleeds into the performances and everyone's just like, oh my God, it just can really mess with your head. But I don't know. I mean, it's always just like certain things. Like one thing that sticks out on Z is we were shooting Sean Rogerson's last scene before he dies in the film. And it's like, he's going in to see his kid and you're giving him this last father moment and, you know, he goes and he sees the monkey is on the floor. So he puts it with this kid and he's like, I love you or whatever. And he leaves the room and it's like, oh, that's the last time he's going to see his kid. And it's so obvious what he's doing and what the movie's doing at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Sean was just like, just as he's leaving, he just improved a line like, I'll see you tomorrow, you know, and just like very <laughs> emphatically stating what is actually happening. Like, I promise, like, I'll be back, you know? And it was just really funny because it's like 4 a.m. and you're just dying. And that was really funny. I mean, Puppet Man had, Puppet Man had weird ones where the last day of shooting, we were shooting a lot of the interior car stuff where they're driving and we were on a stage and like Keo and Allison, they just couldn't be together in the car at the same time. Like they would be trying to do the scene and the moment they looked at each other, they would just start laughing. And so I was just like, I'm like, fully fed up with it at this point i'm just like i'm like keo get out of the car i'm gonna be acting opposite of her and so like keo's death was the last thing that we shot with the whole crew if you watch it, it's just cross coverage it's like on allison on a single turns around it's on keo i am acting opposite of both of them in those scenes because no they just they just didn't like they were just worn out they were done and I was just like, I don't have time for this shit. We're, we're I'm going to be Keo. I am I'm separating you two yes. right now. A hundred percent. And I was just like, because if we get into this and you're laughing, we're not going to be able to get you out of that. So I'm like, I'm not even going to do it. I'm going to cut the head off here and I'm just going to do this because I know it'll work and it worked. And it's just, it's funny. It's so stupid. <laughs> awesome. Well, that movie as well. Z, definitely check it out. Listeners at home. But I wanted to kind of get into your writing and directorial processes, or I guess I should say processes, speaking of mm -hmm. getting in the weeds. <laughs> 
Can you tell me about your series that I've seen on your social media, quote, how simple VFX can solve dumb problems? Mm -hmm. I was wondering, do you do the post-production yourself? I do, yeah. That's an unfortunate thing with indie filmmaking is like you're trying to put as much money that you have on the screen and, Mm -hmm. you know, you get to post-production. And I've just had to learn from my first movie on, like, VFX is really expensive, you know, to get someone really qualified. So instead of having that money put towards that, I just sort of use the time to figure it out myself. So I've learned Mm -hmm. a lot, like most of the stuff I do, it's either within my scope of being able to do it or close enough that I can learn it. Like the fire sequence on Z, I wasn't supposed to do, we were supposed to hire someone, but it just wasn't working out. So It was like the last thing we did, and I had like a week to just figure out how we could do it and execute it. And Uh it ends up being like 18-hour days where you're just, you know, burning yourself out looking at a computer screen. So, yeah, I mean, just by having to do it, I've learned a lot on how to not only to do the VFX, but to shoot for the VFX. And so that series was just like, I was so caught in the weeds of doing visual effects on this film. And it it can be anything. It can be like green screen. It can just be like, oh, there's cones in the background because we had to block traffic or something like that. Mm. And when you're shooting, like, for example, we were shooting the liquor store scene in The Puppet Man. And it's just a super busy liquor store at like 10 a.m. for some reason. I guess it's Buffalo. I don't know. But um, (laughs) we had to put cones up on the main entrance so cars wouldn't stop flooding in. But then, you know, you're about to shoot and you're like, there's cones in the shot. And if we move them, the moment we move them, cars are going to start pouring in. So it's like, okay, leave them there. I'll paint it out later. It's fine. And so you can shoot, you continue the momentum of the shoot and stuff like that, because I know I'm going to personally paint those out in post. And so you hate yourself for it because you know that the few minutes that you would have spent fixing that during the day is going to take several hours later. But it's like, my time is free when I'm in post-production, you know? It's just time. I'm not paying 50 people to be on set. I'm not paying actors. There's no overtime or anything like that. It's just going to be me in a basement sitting there in the dark just until that shot is done. So yeah, that series was just born out of like, I was watching the locked edit of the film and I saw this continuity error. And I was like, no one's going to care about this. But if I use VFX, I can fix it and it won't be a continuity error anymore. And I just thought like, this is so stupid that I should make a little video doing that. And I I have ideas for more. I just got busy with other stuff, but it just became like these dumb little things that maybe some filmmakers, indie filmmakers aren't thinking about. They're like, oh, well, we need this. It's like, no, you don't. You can do it another way. There's just like so many ways of doing these things that I've learned. So basically I've had to learn visual effects just because there's no money to pay for visual effects. (laughs) So it'd be nice to do a bigger budget thing where you're just like offload everything to someone else and they handle it. And then you can just like, note it or whatever but until i'm given that opportunity it's just going to be me in a basement you know solving it with my time and my patience yeah i mean i'm probably projecting my own proclivities onto you but don't you enjoy it somewhat or is Um, it just is it just tedious and horrifying for you because it depends i mean there's so many different things like you know painting out cones or something like that that's not bad you know i can turn on a tv show and i can just click away until it's gone you know it's just a lot of that But when you're doing things that are like very subjective, it's tough because it's not just executing. Like there's a difference. Like if I'm painting out something in the background, like, oh, there's a water bottle on a table in Game of Thrones. I can get rid of that. And it's very simple because it's either there or it's not. That's easy. It's a binary thing. And it's why I like doing the dishes. Like I can go upstairs, see a sink full of dishes, see a full dishwasher. 
and the process of emptying that dishwasher and cleaning it and getting it running and all that stuff, I enjoy because I'm like, it's either done or it's not. You know, it's yeah. very binary. Whereas with film and making a film and like writing the film, directing the film, editing the film, doing the VFX on a film, every single thing you do is subjective. You know, like, oh, a character says a line this way or this way. I have to make a decision. So you're constantly making decisions that aren't based on anything but your own personal self, you know? Uh-huh. And so with visual effects, there's a lot of stuff where it's just like, is the thing gone? Is the frame fixed? Yes or no? And it's great. I love that stuff. I can just turn off my brain and execute and I don't have to think about it. But then when you get into something where it's like, say, a fire and you're like, it has to look real. And I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I'm like, I'm just trying to figure it out and make something that makes sense for the story and makes sense for whatever. And you have to bend the rules a little bit. And it becomes so stressful because you're trying to match reality. I mean, like Puppet Man, there's a whole sequence on a bridge. Like that entire thing is VFX. Like we actually shot on a bridge, but there's no water down there. It was frozen. So Mm. like I had to take a drone and film plates of a moving river so I could comp it in there and stuff like, and all those things are great. But then you have a girl jumping off a bridge and it's like, oh, the physics are a little bit off. And it's like, because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I'm just like, (laughs) I have to make this up as I go. Like the water looks real because it's a real thing put on a thing and it's fine and you don't think about it. But then you have this one moment. I mean, every shot in that sequence is a big VFX shot. But that one moment will stand out more than the rest. And you're just like trying to mitigate that. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's just a lot of work. A lot of it I like because it is just very turn off your brain. But when you get into those subjective things where you get into uncanny valleys or something like that, that's really tough because I can't afford to pay someone to do it and do it right. So I have to just get it approximated as closely as possible. And that can be frustrating. But in general, it is pretty nice because you can just sort of do a thing. Like your shot is just paint out this thing. It's gone. Move on. Great. It's subjectivity that kills you. Gotcha. Well, tell me about the process of getting your films made with production companies. Like, I think for the Puppet Man, it was Digital Interference Productions and Hadron Films. Uh, that was Z. So Z was... Or Z, uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, so Hadron Films, they were an investor company out of Vancouver. So they put some money in on that. And, you know, it's like there's like different levels of involvement that people could pay for. And one of them was you pay this much, you can get your logo at the beginning of the film. So we were lucky because they had invested in a couple of films at that point, like in my first film, Stillborn, they were involved with. And so it's just investment with that. Digital Interference was kind of the production company for Stillborn and Z. And that was Colin Minahan. And he would help like raise the money and he helped write those two scripts and everything like that. So when you're doing these indies, you're taking on all the risk of these investors and stuff like that on yourself. So you raise, you know, however much, $150,000, $200,000 to make a movie. And you're hoping that not only can you make the movie, but that you can sell the movie and get a return for the investors and everybody's happy and stuff like that so that they'll do it again. And so that was kind of the situation with like Hadron Films and First Look Ventures was another one on Z. And then Digital Interference was just the production company that we were making the film under. So they were kind of like the studio, I guess you would say. But it's such an indie level that's not really that. So The Puppet Man was the first one that was financed not by independent people of mine. Oh. Shutter actually financed it. So um, like Superhost, Z, and Stillborn, they were all independently financed from people. And then, you know, Shutter. AMP International, they kind of 
handled the financing side of the puppet man. So the budget was a bit higher. It's just a different thing. Um, it was it was cool because it was just you know the risk of failure is not on every day where you're like my uncle's he's put money into this and if I don't get his money back it's gonna make Christmas <laughs> awkward right yeah <laughs> gotcha well when it comes to script writing can you tell me about your revision process like how do you know when a script is truly finished. I mean, it never is, right? It's like you get to a point where you're happy enough with it that you can take it to actors and you can take it to investors. You can do all the things and you can start the process. And that's just like intuition. You just have to know when it's at a point that's good enough, you know? But even then, the way I put it is like when you're writing a script, you're in a room, there's a typewriter in the middle and you type up your script. And then production is like someone coming in And you have to rewrite the same script, but they start cutting off your fingers one by one. And so Mm. you're doing it and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, I have to use like a bloody stump. And (laughs) it's no longer this vacuum thing where what's on the page is the movie. You're rewriting things, you're changing things because all of a sudden you don't have the fingers. And then you go into post-production and they start cutting off your arm and your leg and you're constantly (laughs) dealing with things and you're just trying to retain the shape of that script, but it's constantly iterating. So Yeah, I mean, the process of script revision goes all the way to the end. I mean, the Puppet Man, for example, the whole double death sequence that happens with Glenn and Joe, the way they died was always there. But it was like, Glenn dies, Joe dies, move on. And then in editing, it became, well, Joe and Glenn are going to have it happen simultaneously. But the problem is, we don't have any setup for Joe's death because she was the second one. So all of a sudden, it's like, okay, If you watch the film, it never shows Joe's mouth having the conversation with Ruby on the phone because we didn't shoot it. So we have like this behind the ear shot. We have close-ups of this text stuff, which I, you know, I had to write up and shoot myself. And then the rest of the scene and they're like having this little conversation, it's all ADR. And so you're like creating this fake story and this fake script moment out of nothing because you don't have it because you didn't shoot it because you only have so much time when you're shooting a film, like you don't have time to experiment. You're just like, okay, this is the blueprint. We're going to do this. And then you look at the deck that you just built from that blueprint. And you're like, oh no, like we didn't put a floor on or something. And you're mm-hmm. constantly just adjusting. So I don't know how it is in the studio space. I mean, you hear things like solo and they fire the directors and they bring on Ron Howard and he does a bunch and it happens all the time. Like they're constantly shooting a movie, testing the movie, shooting more stuff to fix whatever. In the indie space, you don't have that. So you're just trying to do as much as you can with the limited resources and stuff. Like I've never done a test screening before. It would be great to do it. It's just, it costs money. You have to set it up and you need the infrastructure to do that. So you're basically just following your intuition and hoping that you're right. And sometimes you are, and sometimes you aren't, but it's super alienating because there's no team working on these films and posts. It's just like me in a room and hoping to God it makes sense. <laughs> you know, like you can, you can send it to friends and colleagues, whatever, and be like, hey, what do you think? Send notes. But it's different than having a ton of random people that are ultimately going to be your audience being like, oh, that character is a jerk the whole time. Is there any way you can soften their performance or something like that? You know, like I guess on Superhost is an example because the script, Claire, the girl played by Sarah Canning, she was more of a bitch in the script. Like she was very cold to Teddy and stuff like that. And Sarah was just like, I think she's too cold. And so we would shoot a scene and it would be like, oh man, she is too cold. And we would return and shoot a simpler version or something where she's a little bit lighter. There's a sequence when they go outside and they're like looking out. Oh, sorry, you haven't seen it. That was one that you didn't watch. But um, we were just basically like shooting and then reshooting little scenes with her 
to try and soften or at least give the audience an inside look as to why she's a bitch because it helps. But you're again, you're just like hoping that it makes sense. It is very much just like on the director and whoever is editing, which is me again, to just sort of like solve these problems. And so, you know, the script is never done. It's just released, right? Mm-hmm. Well, can you tell me a little bit about the collaborative writing process? And I'm making an assumption here on the puppet man. Did you work with your brother? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my first two scripts I wrote with that guy, Colin Minahan, and I'd written one before, but I didn't really understand a lot of it. It was very experimental. And then, you know, when we wrote stillborn, it was kind of eye opening. And then we wrote Z together and that was eye opening. And I learned a lot and I took that to Superhost, which I wrote solo And then the puppet man, because it was kind of like a hired job, like a producer reached out and was like, hey, we have these ideas. Would you want to write on any of them? And I looked at the list and I was like, oh, this one, the puppet man's kind of interesting. So I took it to my brother, who's been a lifelong writer, but never films. And I was just like, let's look at this. Maybe we can build this together and write it together. And it slowly just turned into this thing that to this day, like I just came before this interview from his house and we were writing together for a new project. So we've got I don't know. I'm 38. He's 43. We've got a long history of knowing each other and we're pretty close. So there is uh, a lot of trust and things like that in the process. And, you know, we grew up always kind of like one upping jokes and stuff like that. So we already have this like baked in kind of like spitballing already. Like you say a joke and then you one up the joke and then you one up that joke. And then eventually you're way over the line. You realize like, oh, we should probably stop. But so there's like, so there's like, you know, self editing. For the love of God. (laughs) Yes. But you hit a point. You're just like, okay, man, we should dial that back. But you know, it's very bred into us where we have that ability to just sort of pitch a dumb idea and build on that idea. And eventually maybe you find something cool. So, you know, it's a very natural fit. And the one thing that he has is like the ability to beat the blank page. You know, like I wrote Superhost by myself. That was the only one. You know, you send me a script idea. I can write 10 pages really easily. I'll write an opening, whatever it is. I'll get to that point and then I'll hit a wall. And I'm like, oh man. And then I'll just spend my time rewriting the first 10 pages and getting that right instead of moving forward because the journey forward is terrifying. But my brother, what he likes to do is just tackle that empty page. Like he looks at that as like a challenge and he doesn't get scared of it. So like the puppet man, we did this really long treatment. It was like a 30 page thing going through all the story beats, all the characters, et cetera. And then he just took that and wrote a first draft, did it very quickly. And then we just sort of like look at that and we edit it and we tweak it and we make it better. And then we work on the next draft together. But he has a crazy ability to just put something out there so that you have something to work on, you know, because that's so hard to do. In my opinion, I just like just being able to push through anxieties and be like, oh, this isn't the best thing, but it's a thing and we can fix it later. You know, having that ability is so powerful. So the Puppet Man was the first one we did. And then we actually got hired to work on Five Nights at Freddy's and we did two drafts of that which just came out and has been a monster hit. Nice. So we did that and, you know, we got replaced by Emma. So we were the last, the one before Emma came on and did it too. And then we wrote another one that I'm in post-production on right now. And then we've got another one that we finished and now we're working on another one. The output is very high because we have this ability to work together really closely. It's been pretty sweet because if I'm doing post-production on stuff, it's hard to be writing a script you know, Mm -hmm. and I want to get away from that. But until then, until I get to that point in my career where I can hire someone really good, kind of falls on me to do the soup to nuts on a film. So um, yeah, no, it's been great to work with him just because there's the lifetime of experience together already to draw from. So it's pretty cool. 
So what determines your balance of practical effects versus VFX? Do you prefer one over the other? Uh, money, money is always what dictates this. <laughs> and, uh, it's always the same thing. I mean, you know, best case scenario, everything's practical, you know, mm-hmm. that would just be amazing. But unfortunately, like we live in a time that money, especially in the indie space, like if you have a Rick Baker type, you've got Tom Savini and you just know it's going to be amazing. And there's like the collaborative process and they make this their own thing. Like, you know, Friday the 13th, four, when Tom Savini came back, that's like the best score in the series because he's just so damn talented. You know, on an indie space, you're dealing with a budget level where you don't have those specialized people. You know, you've got a makeup team, but they're not just doing effects makeup. They're doing hair, they're doing the makeup, they're doing any blood that you're doing. They only have so much power and control and stuff like that. So you have to think outside the box. And like, you can attempt to do things practically. Like, we certainly always want to try that first. But fortunately, I have this VFX background where if something doesn't work, I can pivot pretty quickly and do it in another way. For example, like two of the deaths in Puppet Man, Charlie falling off the thing. Like when we were talking, we were going to have a fake broken leg that we could put on, you know, shooting off to the side. Because the reference for that fall was kind of like the It Follows opener where the girl is on the beach and her legs all bent gross. And it's just like this iconic image. And it was like, well, let's try and do something similar to that. When you see here over the edge, you've got this impossibly broken leg on top of the blood and blah, blah, blah. But then you get to the day and it's just like, oh, no, we don't have the leg. And it's like, oh, okay, I thought we had that. All right, let's see. How do we do this? And then all of a sudden you just, you know, you have the actress move her body in a way and I'm going to take her leg from that shot and I'm going to apply it to her body in this shot, you know? So you're just combining pieces. The same thing happened with Glenn and the weightlifting thing. Like we talked about having a fake jaw built and like this whole thing. And then you get to the point and that was only day two of the shoot. So there's just no time for it. So I'm just like, okay, I can solve this in another way. My reference for that sequence was American history X, the curb stomp moment where it's like, The teeth are on the curb. They're grinding the asphalt. There's all this tension and the fear in the guy's eyes. But the moment that it happens, it cuts really wide and it happens, but it's not close enough. But you've seen all the detail and the buildup of the scene that you feel like you see it, even though you don't. And so like you have all these close-ups, his tooth, you've got his eye, you've got all these things, muscles doing these things. And then when it actually happens, it cuts to a wide, it drops. And then you have a shot where you intimate gore but it's really just focused on his hand because he's being controlled and then his hand lets go as the puppet man is letting go and in the background of that out of focus we have this really gross thing happening but you don't really see it that well it's all out of focus it's all done like that so ultimately it's like the best case is practical the second best case is vfx done on purpose you know like with joe and the fire stuff we had just like moving lights and reactive lighting and stuff like that. And we had a little bit of smoke to add some atmosphere. But then the fire, basically we shot the scene. And then on one of the days when we were in a studio, we brought a table in, we brought a book in, we brought like the top half of a body built out of chicken wire. And we just like covered everything in kerosene. And we just started lighting it on fire and just like refilming the scene with this fire. So we had an element of fire hitting, you know, and like wrapping around the head and all that stuff that was practical that I could take and composite it onto the actress. So like all the fire, it's all digitally added, but it's real fire, you know, and it's reacting on a book and it's reacting around a fake head and stuff like that. So I can take that data 
apply it to the actual thing and then it becomes pretty seamless, you know, and it works really well. That was a situation where it's like we knew it was going to be visual effects, but we can still shoot practical effects and just comp them together, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Gotcha. So that's kind of like the new way of doing things. If you can do it right and you're not just fixing it in post, you're actually planning for it in post, it could be really effective. Awesome. Well, speaking of VFX, how do you direct actors when they're dealing with a supernatural element that's not going to be visible until post-production? Um, I mean, you're just like... <laughs> It's the George Lucas Phantom Menace tennis ball green room around. Like, one, you're getting good actors that can do it, right? Regardless if there's something there or not, they're acting like there is. So it starts with good cast and getting people that get it. And then it's also just a lot of trust, right? Like, you have to get to that point with your relationship with the actors is at a point where they trust that it will work so they can give it their all and they're not worried about looking dumb because they know that you have a plan. So a lot of that is either confidence or pretending you're confident and acting confident so that people will follow. Because, you know, the moment that you start waffling an idea, it's like, oh, I hope this works. And you use words like hope and wish and whatever, that can fill them with some fear and they won't allow themselves to go to that place, you know, like and get deep and do that thing that they need to do to get a performance that works for the film. So yeah, I mean, it's really just like you hope for the best and you just like really put a lot of eggs in their basket because they're the ones doing the work and you can prod them like, you know, a big thing is just giving them a cue in the middle of a take before a take, whatever, just to get them in the right headspace. Like on puppet man, there's sequences where she has to be really emotional and like dark and she's in this place. And like before the take, I'm just walking in circles around her and I'm just talking really mean to her, but not to the actor, to the character, you know, like I'm not uh, saying Allison, you're this, I'm saying like Michael and I'm talking in the character terms, like you've killed everybody. Nobody loves you. You're entirely alone. You killed your family. You killed your friends. And just like circling her and like put her in this headspace where when you say action, she feels like crap. And she can bring that to the performance. And it depends on the actor. You have to have that trust for that to happen. You know, unfortunately, for the majority of the actors that I've worked with, we've gotten that relationship. We've gotten to that point where I can do that. Because if you don't, if you've got a certain person coming in and they're playing a psychologist and you tried something like that, it would not go well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it just all depends on the actor-director relationship and how much trust there is between you to execute something, you know, because if you can't do that, you know, you're just relying on them and they might be 90% of the way there. But if you're trying to get them 100% of the way there, you just have to be able to push them, right? Yeah. Wow. So which director do you admire the most for their technical ability? And which do you admire the most for their artistic vision? Um, I mean, the top of the top director for me, just in terms of everything, is David Fincher. There's a precision in his filmmaking craft that is untouchable by anybody, in my opinion. Like, even movies that are very script heavy and like dialogue driven, like The Social Network, when you peel back the dialogue, which is incredible, and you just look at it as a film, every shot in that film is perfect. Everything is framed perfectly. The camera only moves when it has to. It's just like flawless technical filmmaking. And Fincher has a saying, it's like, what is the, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but it's basically like there's two ways of shooting a scene properly. And one of the ways is wrong, you know? So it's like, he's got, <laughs> he's got this very I mean, he's egotistical for sure, but he's earned uh, it because he's a, he's so brilliant. 
Yeah. Um, but there's just sort of this like technical coldness that also comes with that. You know, you watch these films and they're not as like character driven. They're more story driven and technically driven, but it totally speaks to me as a filmmaker. Like I love the way he does things and I love how he approaches this stuff. And like, he's known for doing a zillion takes to just get to the point with the performance where they're no longer saying words on a page. They're just saying it out of intuition. Like they've said it so many times and they've done it so many times that the pretenses of being an actor and performing are gone and they just sort of let go at a certain point and it just becomes what they say because they've said it so many times, you know, so the performance part of it drops off. I can't imagine doing a hundred takes on something ever. That's just insane. Like you have to move, but He's built it into his schedules where, you know, he's shooting something like Zodiac in 120 days. Crazy. You know, I've done 20 at the most and that's never enough. But, you know, at a certain point you get to that limit where it's like, okay, he's at like a Kubrickian level with how much he does and all the takes and stuff like that. And it's, but you know, you can't argue with the results because you watch his films and you can pick a frame, any frame in the film and it's perfect. Like the lighting's perfect. The performance is perfect. Everything technically the dolly move lands exactly when the actor lands. It's really wild when you analyze it at that level. But then like on the other side of the scale, someone that I really admire is David F. Sandberg who did like lights out stuff like that. Shazam. And it's not even really the films that he does. It's him as a person. Like he came up on YouTube. He was doing shorts with his wife, who he's still with. And she's always in his films. And he's just like, even though he's blown up and he's doing $200 million films, he still takes time to maintain his YouTube fan base. Like he does videos. He'll do essays about new movies that he's got coming out, whatever. You know, he's still doing short films with his wife, the stuff that got him into the business in the first place. And he still just loves making stuff, even when he doesn't have everything. And what it's done is it's taught him to do visual effects. It's taught him to do audio editing. It's taught him how to shoot all those things. And so because I do similar thing, like I've shot shorts with my kids, I want to do more. There's just this like love of the process that you get from him that I'm really inspired by because, you know, he did Annabelle two, I think. And, you know, he was at his house doing visual effects shots for that, creating shots out of nothing just to help the film because he knows how, and it's not a bad thing. It's just not everyone has the same level of understanding of things like visual effects, but a lot of directors, they'll step away from a project. It'll get edited. They'll see it. They'll react as the director. They'll make notes, whatever, but then they send it to visual effects and like they're limited by what the other person can do. They don't know that they can do certain things. Like David knows if he needs a shot, he can do it. You know, he can just roll up his sleeves and execute it and then give it to them. And the movie's better for it. And I just love the passion and everything that he has. So, you know, just a big fan of his as a person more than just even as a filmmaker, you know? Awesome. Yeah. Did he do anything? There was a few directors that did some pretty amazing stuff during COVID. Like what's the name of that one director that did the uh, video conferencing movie? Oh, Rob Savage. He did host. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, Rob did that. And then he did that dash cam movie with Blumhouse. And then he just did the boogeyman with Paramount career trajectory, you know, awesome. Mm -hmm. That's what you hope for. But David F. Sandberg did the lights out short after doing a ton and he did that for a contest. And then I don't remember which company, but they optioned it and brought him in and he did the feature version. And he's just been like a meteor since then. It's pretty cool. 
Well, I haven't seen your movie Superhost, but it seems to be about a couple recording for a show that I imagine is for a YouTube channel or something similar. Mm -hmm. So with the rise of technology and AI in particular, do you have any plans to create films that delve into dystopian concepts? Uh, yeah, actually, the one that I'm writing with my brother Ryan right now, it's on the surface, it doesn't seem like it. I don't want to talk about it much, but it definitely is tackling AI in an interesting way. Like the log line, all the things, they're going to be pointing to one thing. And then if you watch it, you'll be like, oh, wow, this is about something totally different than I thought. But, you know, until we get to the point where we've got the script, like we're very early, we're just like figuring out all the major beats and stuff like that. We're pretty close. Now we'll start writing probably in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I'm excited to kind of play in this world because it's like a love letter to horror while at the same time being kind of against the rise of AI and the soullessness that comes with that, if that makes mm. sense. So yeah, it's definitely something that's on the forefront, of, I think, of everybody's mind. I mean, you've got the SAG thing going on right now and all the AI implications there. WGA just settled. AI is here to stay. And, you know, it can be good. There's good things that come from it. But there's also things where, you know, you can replace a lot of people with these things because you can get it to code a website for you in a moment, you know, and just click mm -hmm. and it's done. And it's interesting because it's like art as a form has usually been like gate kept by the artist, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not good at drawing, for example, but there's great people at drawing. I would love to be able to draw like them, but I can't. But if I all of a sudden go, Hey, I want to create a prompt in an AI thing. I can create what's in my head very fast and like you know concept art anything like that it can be generated in a second that would take like you know you hire someone an artist to do some concept art it takes them a week and you know that's terrifying but it also is kind of freeing you're not held back by your own ability you know so there's this weird pros and cons thing that happens there where like literally I could generate a script right now. I could write a feature length script in five minutes and just give it some prompts. And then I could take that and curate it. And I don't want to, and I don't think you lose the humanity in art when you do that, like your point of view and all those things and your experience that AI doesn't have, but what it does is insane. And just like, yeah. I don't know. So it's definitely something that you know, we're getting very close to Skynet and we need to be friends. With <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, I think yeah. that's the problem. I just don't know yeah. where does this end? I have no idea. It's scary and cool at the same time. Like, I don't know. It's crazy, but I could see a time when like directors aren't needed anymore. Cause I can just be like, I want to watch a movie called the puppet man at college and everybody's a Muppet. And then, you know, mm -hmm. you watch that and you get this 20 minute film and it's not good, but it is that idea. Your neurons are firing you. You're like, oh, I made this and you move on and it just becomes a piece of content like so much else. And I don't know. It's an interesting time. I don't know what the end game is, but there's no real paths forward that don't seem pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I interviewed a guy, Kenneth Wenger. It actually, it's this next episode coming out this coming Tuesday. He's an AI researcher, software engineer, and uh, he's just basically saying that it's meant to be used as a tool, but there's the possibility of you becoming the tool. <laughs> right. <know>? Yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, I could see it getting to the point where it's like you have a TV show, say, like you have a CSI type show and you have a team of 15 writers doing 24 episodes a year. You know, all of a sudden you just need one writer 
And all he is doing is interpreting prompts. Like we need an episode where the main character does this, that, and that. It spits out the script. They can curate it a little bit. And then that's it. You know, it replaces those 15 people for this one robot thing that does it for you. And yeah, I mean, it's like, eventually there's going to be a point where we're all just like servicing machines. And Mm -hmm. all we're good for is making sure they're running at full capacity. I don't know. It's very dystopian. I don't know. We are the batteries. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're in the matrix soon. It's, it's, It's weird. I don't know. It's hard to think too much about it because it's kind of a limitless thought experiment. It can go anywhere, and they're all probably right. So, yeah, yeah just try and focus on the now, and then right. you know deal with that later. Well, kind of moving along with that concept, what is the life of Brandon Christensen like outside of filmmaking? Really boring. You know, I'm a father of three kids, and I live in suburbia. I coach baseball. It's very much like I don't talk about what I do a lot. I just sort of exist in this plane. It's very normal. You know, I had a very normal upbringing. So, you know, I loved my childhood and everything like that. I had a great time with my siblings, all that stuff. So I'm just trying to like create a great childhood and my wife's awesome at it. And just like trying to give the kids as good of an experience as they can, because you always want your kid's life to be better than yours. And I was fortunate I had a good life. And so I'm just like trying to match that or more. And a lot of my focus goes towards them and trying to be there for them and stuff like that. So there's a lot of times where I disappear. Like when I shot the puppet man, I had to leave for New York and I was there for eight weeks and you leave the family behind and it's just, you know, and then you just have a FaceTime relationship. But in general, like I'm home a lot, so I'm around a lot and I try and be as helpful as I can be. But you know, when you do get to post-production things like that, like, you know, and it's just sort of built in, like I'm going to be in my office for 15 hours a day and like i'm gonna be gonna be very surly (laughs) and i'm gonna be like very distant for a bit because i'm trying to solve something in my brain at dinner so i'm like eating spaghetti while they're all you know uh, buzzing from school or whatever and i'm like how do i paint out this cone in the background of the scene and make it look you know and so there's a lot of that so it's like it's kind of like a there's a duality of Brandon because there's like the film side of me and then there's the family side of me and they're very different, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of fun because like there's very few people who know who I am outside of like smaller horror circles and stuff like that, or they're familiar with it. But, you know, filmmakers aren't in front of the camera. You know, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff or anything. You know, you go to a film festival and people know who you are, but in general, no one could care less about me when it's just like all these parents, all these things, they're just dealing with their own things. And so you're just like, you know, just trying to keep things as normal as possible. Yeah. All right. Well, Brandon, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, it was fun. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? Um, I don't know. I mean, the Puppet Man just came out and it's still fresh. If you've got Shudder or AMC Plus, you can watch it on there. You can check out the older film, Z Superhost. I encourage Superhost. Like that one was shot in the height of COVID. It was 2020, October we shot it. So it was like pre-vaccine. It was pre any, you know, knowledge of where things were going. It was just like a very different time. And we found a way to go out and make a really small movie with a very small and passionate crew and cast. It was just cool to come out of that with a feature film. 
And so, you know, the Puppet Man was a little bit different. It was more traditional and stuff like that. It's fun to have just like a budding and growing catalog of films to sort of draw upon and show off. I've got another one in post right now. We're writing this other one that hopefully we get to a point where we can start looking for financing and stuff like that. But I don't know. It's an interesting time because, you know, everything's so expensive now. It doesn't seem like there's as much fun money anymore. So, you know, every movie I feel like is a miracle. And so, you know, I've done four, five will be done soon. It's just like, uh, you know, just check out the films if you can. <laughs> I guess and I'm getting I'm getting pretty philosophical about a pretty standard question. But uh, yeah, check out the puppet bed on Shutter this yeah. weekend, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, listeners at home, all links for those films spoken about will be in the description. And Brandon, thank you again for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer who has created a dark tale set on a terrifying island inspired by a real historical location. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Some hoop dreams, but no jumping like I'm at him. My pen is too clean, so I had to stick with rapping. My life is hella deep, dog. You couldn't even fathom. My goals are like Twitter, you can see I'm staying at them. I'm trying to be the goat. Every day I'm chasing ghosts like I'm Danny Phantom. And I can sell a nigga, but I really sell a hit. It's my niche. And business at the beat, so I had to hit the switch. And now you're all in. I ain't on the fence. All these rappers peep my game. I ain't talking switch. Man, I'm trying to get rich. I'm trying to make my wrist match the plaques I started from the bottom, I ain't going back Told all the dogs, we gon' make it out I would never fall, you can't take me out I'm popping like a zig, I'm breaking out And I am hella lit, you want a couch They said I wasn't good enough But that's in one near and not the other And they don't wanna see me shine like they close the shutters But when I said I'm top five, I didn't stutter I put the six on my back like my name is Color And I got the game in my hand You would think I'm wearing cutters They were sleeping on me like they tucked in some covers But now I got everybody woke like they BLM Now it's over like I'm pressing Sim It was looking dim, eyes slim like M It was sink or swim, they hated me but loved them. Yeah, they put me in the rough, but I was a gym. Told all the dogs, we gon' make it out. I would never fall, you can't take me out. I'm popping like a zit, I'm breaking out. And I am hella lit, you want a couch? Everybody dissing me, even yes, Jules. I admit it, yeah, it kinda hurt. It was hella cruel, but I use it as fuel. Ain't no turning back. I told Mecca on the Pro Tools. And I'll never stop going in like I'm Quan. Yeah, I'm working to dawn. Cause I know that I'm the one. I'm a king like Vaughn. I gotta keep a bag on me just like a carry on. And people hate, but I carry on like a way son. I'm a couple years in, but I've only just begun. People thought that I was done. They was looking for a fort. I was coming up short, but I never did abort. Now I'm popping like a cork. I'm champagne sipping, cause now we got them clicking. I remember days when people wouldn't listen. I was contemplating quitting, but now I'm dripping like a gutter. You know that's where we came from. 
Yeah, I took a couple L's. Now the only ones I take is when I face some. And I just got a new deal like I'm Taysom. You think it's scary now? Wait until the take comes. Told all the dogs we gon' make it out. I would never fall. You can't take me out. I'm popping like a zit. I'm breaking out. And I am hella lit. You want a couch?